Good morning. Welcome to Liberty Christian Fellowship. If you're new or visiting with us this morning, my name's Tim. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here, and we are right in the middle of, well, we're actually beyond the middle. Uh, We're like two-thirds of the way through walking through the large kind of narrative story of the Bible, all the narrative portions from Genesis up through Revelation, and we're in the middle of the Gospels. Uh, Over the course of this, we're reading all of the Gospel of Luke and all of the Gospel of John with some pieces of Matthew and Mark kind of sprinkled in there. And what we've been doing uh, in the, the gospel portions of this is that we've been highlighting various aspects of who Jesus is and what his ministry was and uh, how it is that he interacted with people during his time here on earth. And so we started at the beginning of Luke and we looked at his birth and what is significant about that and just the very person of Jesus coming into the world, God becoming flesh. Why does the incarnation matter? What are we seeing there? And it's the full display of the holiness, the glory of God in human form, in Jesus Christ. And it's going to culminate in his death on the cross for the, uh, to provide forgiveness for the sins of all of humanity. And that beautiful picture. And then we looked at the way Jesus interacts with the crowds of people and the way people just see him, not just as a good teacher or some sort of prophet or something. I mean, people see him for who he really is and they just savor that and they want to be near him and they want to hear him talk and they want to touch him. I mean, they're literally just trying to like grab a little piece of his robe because they're witnessing his power and his miracles. And we looked last week at Jesus's calling to follow him. And what does that mean? When he says, pick up your cross and follow me, what in the world does that mean? What is the cost of following Jesus? And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the way that Jesus teaches. And We're going to do this again uh, through kind of a different lens when we get into the middle of the book of John. But right now, we're going to look specifically at parables. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to there, we're going to spend all of our time in the first 10 verses of Luke 15. Uh, This week, the reading goes from Luke chapter 15 all the way through chapter 20. And in chapter 19, the very last phrase of chapter 19 is so descriptive of the way people interacted with Christ when he was here. He's been teaching in the temple. It says that he uh, goes there daily. He's teaching there every day. And the last phrase of Luke 19 describes people's reaction to hearing that. It says this, For all the people were hanging on his words. And that's the way people responded to Jesus when he opened his mouth to speak and to teach. They just could not get enough of that. It was so interesting. And there was so much authority. And he was saying things about the kingdom of God and about repentance and about who he was that were so captivating and alluring that they just wanted more and more and more of that and they're hanging on his words. Our reaction, our response to not just the words of Jesus but to God's word in scripture should be that we just hang on that. That It's so captivating and it's so alluring and it's filled with the story of God and his character and what he's done on behalf of humanity and where we're headed and what's going to happen at the end. I mean, we should just hang on the words of scripture. And if you've got a Bible that puts Jesus's words in red, you'll see that Luke 15 that we're going to look at today is all Jesus talking. And what he has to say is beautiful and it should be precious to us, but we need to understand it. We need to understand what is Jesus doing in a parable. And so we'll start with a simple definition. What is a parable? A parable is a simple story used to illustrate a deeper spiritual lesson. 
And there's a particular reason that Jesus taught in them. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 12 to 15, if you want to jot that down, you can look at it later. He explains exactly why it is that he teaches in parables. He teaches in them in order to explain truths about the kingdom of God. But there's a second piece of that. He also does it to hide that truth from some people. Who is he hiding it from? What is he hiding? He's certainly not hiding who he is. He's certainly not hiding the truth of repenting and believing. He's not hiding uh, the reality of the kingdom from them. The issue is that there are some who not only believe in who Jesus is, but they also believe in the weight of his words and the power of his teaching. And there are others who do not. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to speak to those who believe. And to those who believe, they hear these things about the kingdom and they're able to internalize them and take them in and understand them. And to those who do not believe, they cannot. A lack of understanding isn't an intellectual thing. In fact, often Jesus is delivering these parables to Pharisees, teachers of the law, individuals who are incredibly intelligent. They can work the pieces out of these stories and see the purpose, but their lack of understanding comes from a lack of belief. It's a heart issue, not a brain issue. Matthew Henry says it this way, that parables make the things of God more plain and easy for those who are willing to be taught and at the same time more difficult and obscure to those who are willfully ignorant. What Jesus is doing in parables is he's teaching about the kingdom of God very clearly for those who are willing to be taught. But for Pharisees and scribes and some of his enemies and those who oppose him, they don't make sense. But it's not an intellectual issue. It's a heart issue. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk our way through the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15. There are two parables there. We're going to use a framework to uh, show kind of how can you work with a parable to get the meaning for yourself. We're just going to look at two of them. There are uh, many, many parables in the four Gospels. And the hope for us as a staff, for me as the pastor, is that in giving you these tools, you could sit down with any parable and work out not just the meaning, but also how do you apply that to your life without someone having to stand here and go through this, you know, verse by verse every time. And so here's the framework. If you've got a little green book, it's on page 23. If you use the website, bibleinitiative.org, it's out there on that. It might be bibleinitiative.com. Corey's going to be so mad I got that wrong. Um, <laughs> he literally told me after first service, hey, plug the website. No, I can't even remember what it is. All right. Um, www.bibleinitiative.try both endings. And so <laughs> it's on there if you want to look at it there. We're going to three steps to understanding these parables. The first is to listen from the perspective of the original audience, which means first and foremost, you've got to figure out who the original audience is. Sometimes the text tells you that explicitly right before the parable starts. Other times you've got to kind of work backwards and figure out in the run of the text who is Jesus talking to? Who is, who is around? And then you've got to figure out, what is he talking about? If I started to tell an illustration up here this morning about taxis and a taxi driver, we would understand that. I wouldn't need to explain that a taxi is something that operates typically in a larger city. There's a driver who spends all day in the car. He flips the meter on when you get in. It racks up what the cost is. When you get out, you pay him, and he goes on with the rest of his day. You go on with yours. You don't have to have a car. You can use a taxi. 500 years from now... There might not be taxis. 
And if I were to stand up 500 years from now, A, I'd be 531 years old and that would be attention grabbing. And B, if I were to start talking about taxis, I would need to explain a little bit about what a taxi is and how it functioned. There are aspects of parables where we've got to figure out what did that thing mean to those people at that time? So not only do we need to establish who the audience is, we've got to be able to hear the parable from their perspective. That is step number one. The second step is that we need to look for the main point. And the main point is always related to the kingdom of God, which elicits an immediate question. What does the kingdom of God mean? What is the kingdom of God? Sinclair Ferguson gives a great definition that's much more succinct and to the point than I could do on my own, so I'm just going to read his. He says this, that the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God, the expression of his gracious sovereign will. To belong to the kingdom of God is to belong to the people among whom God's reign has already begun and to the people among whom God's reign will eternally exist. So the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God, the gracious expression of his sovereign will. In a very real way, the kingdom of God is both coming and yet simultaneously advancing. Let me explain that really quickly. It's coming in that Revelation tells us that Jesus is going to come back He's going to put a final end to all sin. And at that point, the un, uh, undeterred, worldwide, global rule and reign of God is going to be manifest in all of this new heaven and new earth that's going to come at the end of all things. The kingdom of God is coming, but it's also advancing because when Jesus came into the world, he inaugurated that. When someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they come under the rule and reign of God, which means that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is advancing in and through you. And as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth and as more people place their faith in it, the kingdom of God grows and expands and advances. So it's both coming and advancing. Here's one more thing about the kingdom of God. It is an external reality. It's objective. In our world today, kind of postmodern-ish, when we... Uh, kind of filter out what happens in the world around us, we typically go from the vantage point of, what does this mean to me? What does this thing mean to me? What did that experience mean to me? Oftentimes, you could sit in a Bible study and hear somebody say, what does that verse mean to you? Which sounds like a totally fine question, but it's not the right question. The right question is, what does that verse mean? Period. There's objective external reality, and the kingdom of God is an objective external reality. And as Jesus teaches about those things, he does not intend them to then be filtered through each individual's personal experience, and then we come to what we think it means for us. He's saying this is true, and it impacts all of humanity. That's why these parables are so important. That's why their truths are so important. And so when we look for the main point, we're looking for something about the kingdom of God that comes to bear on all of humanity. Are you with me? We're going to come out of the weeds now. Sound good? Last, we live in light of that particular truth. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to apply that listen, look, live framework to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. I'm going to read them. You can follow along with me if you've got a Bible. It says this, Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. First thing we need to do is establish... Who is Jesus talking to? Verses 1 and 2 actually give us a pretty good idea. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives and eats with sinners. If you were to flip back to chapter 14, you would see that Jesus has just had dinner with a bunch of Pharisees and scribes. Pharisees were religious elite. They specialized in knowing all the ins and outs of Jewish law, Old Testament law. Not only did they want to know all the ins and outs of it, but then they wanted to make sure that not only they, but everyone else applied it to every facet of life. Jesus is at dinner with them, and the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees in Luke 14 is super bizarre, and it's almost entirely one-sided. Jesus begins it by asking a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Or, if your child fell into a well, would you get them out? And it puts the Pharisees in a real bind because they need to try to make a decision between what's obviously the right answer, which is if you had the power to heal someone who was sick and it happened to be the Sabbath, you would do it. You wouldn't wait. If your child fell into a well on the Sabbath, you would get them out. You wouldn't yell down to them, hey, we'll be back tomorrow. Drink the water that's down there. You wouldn't do that. And yet, according to the law, there was not supposed to be any work done on the Sabbath. And so you wouldn't heal. You wouldn't get your child out of the well. You wouldn't get an ox out of the well. So they're stuck. They can't make a decision between what does their legalistic interpretation of the law say and what is obviously the right thing to do. And while they're kind of stammering, looking for an answer, Jesus gives them two parables. And they're both about humility. One is, when you go to a wedding feast, where do you sit? The other parable is, if you throw a big banquet, who do you invite? And he just kind of lets that hang out there over them. Because obviously, the Pharisees would sit in the best spot and invite the people that increase their status. And then he talks to them about the cost of following him. And he finishes Luke chapter 14 with one of his most famous sayings, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. And he stands up and he leaves dinner. And that's where we get Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Jesus has just given a scathing rebuke to these religious elite. You can't make obvious decisions because you're so legalistic in the way you approach things. You're not humble. There's no humility. You're all about attracting attention to yourself for your, lit, your religious goodness. You're like salt that has lost its taste. And he goes out. He leaves dinner. These sinners and tax collectors come to him. But the Pharisees come out of the, the house. And so 
right in front of Jesus are a group of tax collectors and sinners, and there are these Pharisees and scribes behind them saying, end of 15.2, this man, they don't even want to refer to his name. That's like what you do when you're kind of annoyed with somebody, this guy, right? (laughs) This man receives and eats with sinners. So he told them this parable. And what he's about to say is going to be incendiary and kind of insidious to one group of people and yet precious and beautiful to another. It's a statement like what Jesus is about to make and what he's just said at dinner that leads the Pharisees to want to kill him. And it's a statement like what Jesus is about to make that caused tax collectors and sinners to just flock to him. That's the audience. Now we need to figure out how would they have heard what Jesus said. Well, we need to see something about sheep and shepherds, right? That's what verse 3 starts with. He told them this parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he has found it? We need to understand something about sheep and shepherds. If you're an elementary school teacher or you've ever worked in public education uh, or education in any form where you had to take a field trip, you'll understand that you're constantly counting kids. Jim knows that when he takes kids on a trip somewhere, like he takes them to Chicago and they're walking around in the large open city, you're just always counting children. The last thing I want to do is arrive back home and look at a parent and say, I'm not sure. (laughs) And so how a shepherd would interact with his flock is at night when they would arrive at the place that they were going to sleep for the evening he would count all of the sheep that were there. And if he found that one was missing, he would look at someone else and he would say, I need you to keep watch over my flock as well as yours. I need to go find the one sheep that's missing. And immediately in that, you see that the shepherd is willing to put himself at disadvantage, right? He's going to lose a night of sleep in order to search for this one sheep that has gone off and is missing. And he will search until one of three things happens. Number one, he decides that I'm just not ever going to find this sheep. Number two, he finds it. Number three, he finds the remains of the sheep having been attacked and killed by some other wild animal. And the sheep can do nothing to help itself. This is not homeward bound, right? Sassy and Chance and Shadow the sheep are not going to work their way through Northern California because their kennel fell off the back of the airplane and just happened to arrive home when the family gets back from vacation. That's not how this is going to work. When a sheep wanders away from the flock, it literally ends up lost in its lostness. In fact, oftentimes what would happen is that a sheep who had wandered away from the flock would just lay down. Once it's lost, it's just going to lay down and it's either attacked and killed by some other animal or it ends up dying there because it never goes to find water. It never attempts to reunite itself. The sheep is just lost and its only hope is that the shepherd would find it. Then something else happens even when he finds it. Verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. He doesn't just locate the sheep and kind of say, you're still there, and then head back. A sheep could weigh up to like 70 pounds. He picks it up, bears the burden of that sheep back to the flock. We've got to understand something about sheep and shepherds. 
We've got to understand something about this whole coin scenario that picks up in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she has found, until she has found it? What's being referred to is probably a drachma. A drachma is about a day's worth of wages. The woman has ten of them. That's not a lot. That's ten days' worth of savings. Dave Ramsey says you should have six months of that, right? This woman has 10 days. She loses one of them. And when you only have a few of something, the importance of one is very obvious. If you've got like 37 shirts in your closet and one of them's kind of raggedy and not looking good, you don't stress out about that one. If you've got three shirts and one of them is raggedy and not doing too well, you become concerned. You do what you can to make that one better. She's got 10 coins and one of them goes missing and she is gonna turn the house over in order to find it. There's also a second reality here, and that's that oil for a lamp was expensive. You only use the lamp on a must, on like a need basis. This must happen. We need to turn it on. And the lost coin is worth flipping on the lamp. You didn't flip them on back then. Putting the oil into the lamp and lighting it. It's a worthy expense. And she searches diligently, similar to the shepherd with the sheep. The coin doesn't know that it's lost. The coin can't think. It can either be found by the woman or remain lost. And the last thing we need to understand is something about this joy that happens at the end. In both stories, Jesus makes a clear point that joy in finding the lost thing is only complete when there's a communal celebration. And that's the way communal societies worked. If I was very joyful over something, the joy was not complete unless we all celebrated together. And if something joyful happened in my life, as a community, we wanted to celebrate together. There's like a shred of that that still exists in our very individualistic world. When you really love something, you've got a hobby or you've got something that you really enjoy doing, you want to share that thing with other people. Hey, come with me and see fill in the blank or let's go do this thing that I love, right? We very rarely get, you know, a what seems like a trivial uh, positive in our life. We found a lost coin and we call all the neighbors. I'm going to now spend the lost coin in order to celebrate with you the fact that I found it. We don't really do that, but that's the way a communal society worked, that joy was complete when you shared it together. That is how these listening people would have heard those two parables. They would have just understood all of that in the back of their minds. And it makes it easy for them, having heard that, to see the main point. And that's the next step. We look for the main point. What is the main point? What is Jesus illustrating about the kingdom of God through these two related parables? Well, it's this, that the king of the kingdom searches for and rejoices over repentant sinners. I'm going to say that again. The king of the kingdom searches for and rejoices over repentant sinners. If you are someone in this room who's placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that should be dear, precious information every time you hear it. That you at some point were lost in your lostness. There was no getting back. And the king of the kingdom came and found you. 
not only did he come and find you, but he then scooped you up and he is now carrying you home. I have goosebumps. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, so should you. And the second reality is that in that moment, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, heaven erupted in praise. There was celebrating over it. And not just a celebration because someone professed faith in Jesus Christ. There was celebrating over the reality that the king had gone searching and had found. That's what the celebrating is for. Absolutely, heaven rejoices when someone places their faith in Jesus Christ. But heaven rejoices at the glory of a king who goes and searches and then finds and it's this joyous moment. And in heaven, that's just happening perpetually. And it's amazing. It's this beautiful picture. Daryl Bach, commentator on the book of Luke, says it this way, that God will go to great effort and rejoice with great joy to find and restore a sinner to himself. The king of the kingdom searches for and rejoices over repentant sinners. That's an objective truth. External to you, you don't read the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin and say, what does this mean to me? You read the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin and you sit in awe and wonder at the fact that the king of the kingdom searches. And what's so beautiful in this is that Jesus Christ, the searcher, is stating this truth to a group of tax collectors and sinners who want nothing more than to be found and brought back into the community. And then there are these Pharisees and scribes kind of on the outside who are hearing that and thinking to themselves, what is this guy, this guy, what is he talking about? My religious sense of propriety tells me that the only people who get picked up by the shepherd or who get found by the woman searching are the people who are super religious, clean on the outside, morally superior. And so they're in the back fuming, angry. And there are these tax collectors and sinners kind of gathered closer to Jesus who would have just probably been weeping at the truth that here is a man who has come to seek and save the lost. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And Jesus says, I am here for the sick. I'm searching for them. And heaven rejoices when one repents. How do we live in light of that truth? First and foremost, and this is something that we've been talking about as we've read through the Gospel of Luke, we need to see and savor the king. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you should wake up every morning, go to bed every night, rejoicing over the reality that you were sought and saved. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became flesh and came into the world and died for your sins and that the Spirit illuminated the truth to you, and you have been found. That should be an eternal joy in your life if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. 
There was nothing you could do to return yourself. There was nothing you could do to find yourself. God has come and found you. He's gone to endless trouble in order to do so. He is carrying you back home, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son in order to find sinners. That is beautiful truth. Are you guys awake? Hello? That is beautiful truth. Amen. If you've placed your faith in that truth, it is eternity changing for you. The other side of that coin is that if you haven't placed your faith in that, man, I pray that you see. I pray that you savor the external objective reality that there is a kingdom of God and that the king of that kingdom searches for people outside of it. That's the first thing. The second one is this. We've got to join the search. We talked last week about following Jesus, meaning that we orient our life behind him. That the things that he does are the things that we do as Christians. That if we're going to pick up our cross and follow him, we identify with him in all things. And to identify with him means that we should be very concerned about those who are lost. The Pharisees standing at the back of this encounter, they look down on the tax collectors and sinners, while at the same time, Jesus is looking for sinners. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we've got to have the same perspective. You orient your life to his. If he is searching, that means we should be searching. If he is reaching out to those who are far from the kingdom in order to bring them into it, you and I had better be doing the same. You see, there's this sinful, fleshly, broken part of our hearts, even after we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that operates a little bit like a Pharisee, a little bit like a scribe, where we sometimes want to operate as if sinners are to be insulated from or distanced from, while the truth of the kingdom is that they are to be searched for and run toward. That's part of what makes this so inflammatory to the Pharisees that are standing in the back. Not only did you just call us salt that's lost its saltiness, but you also just told us that you didn't come here for us. If you're here this morning and you think that your good behavior or your morality is going to be the thing that saves you, you're wrong. If you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you think that your relationship with the Lord is primarily about things in your life going better, you're wrong. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then it is incumbent upon you to join the king in searching for those outside of the kingdom. And over the course of this year, we've been all about eliminating excuses for people and their relationship with the Lord. And so that's why we put together all these resources for reading through scripture. I don't ever read the Bible because I don't know where to start. Well, we, we've given you that. I don't share the gospel because I don't really know how. I want you to put September 9th on your calendar because we're bringing people in here to teach us how to share the gospel with those around us so that we as a church can be very intentional and enthusiastic in joining the search for the lost. The last piece is this. We need to join in the celebration. 
There should be constant joy in your own heart and in your own life over the work of the Lord to seek and to save you. And there should be just repeated, recurring joy over the reality that he is doing that in the world all around us. Over the summer, back in late June and then in July, we had our two VBS uh, opportunities here at LCF. And they're older kids, like fourth grade and up, they go to this overnight camp and the younger kids come to a day thing here over the course of a week. And I had the opportunity to go and to speak um, at the older kids VBS and to give the message where we were going to explain the gospel very clearly and invite kids to place their faith in it. And so I finished talking and some music was playing uh, and I gave kind of an invitation, but I went with a, a different child and was having kind of a separate conversation with him about some stuff going on in their life. When one of our youth interns, Mason Sturtz, who had given his weekend to being up there uh, with our children's ministry, comes out with a young man, and they're having a conversation at a table kind of next to me. And Mason is giving me this look of like, I need you to come over here and help me. He doesn't need to communicate it. His eyes are telling me that that's the truth. And so I finish my conversation with this student, and I go over, and I sit down at this table, and Mason says, Tim, this is Chase, and he wants to put his faith in Christ. I said, Chase, has Mason explained the gospel to you? And Chase said, yeah. And he kind of walked me back through the bridge illustration, if you're familiar with that. And I said, Chase, do you uh, want to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life? And with the biggest smile on his face, he said, yes. And I'm telling you, in that moment, heaven erupted in praise over the glory of a God who searches for sinners. We've got to join in the celebration. We baptized Chase last Sunday, and we celebrated as a church new life in Christ in that young man. When we do baptisms on Sunday mornings, we're celebrating the searching and saving of a repentant sinner. That's what we're doing. I think oftentimes in America, how we kind of operate is with this mindset that everybody's kind of sort of a Christian, so when somebody puts their faith in Jesus, it's like, well, at least they finally admitted it. That's not the truth. You're not just kind of born a Christian. The king of the kingdom searches for and rejoices over repentant sinners. We need to see that truth and savor it. We need to join in the search with Jesus for repentant sinners, and we need to celebrate when they're drawn into faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, I'm going to pray, and we're going to go. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you that you are a good, good Father, that you search for those who are far from you. And you don't just search and find God, but then you pick us up and you carry us back home. God, my prayer is that for those of us in here who have placed our faith in you for the forgiveness of our sins, God, that we would cherish that truth, that we would savor it daily, that we would praise you and marvel at you and magnify your glory every single day, Lord, but that we would not stop there, but that we would join the search, that we would become proclaimers of the grace of the gospel in all things at all times, that we would orient ourselves behind Jesus and that our lives would look very similar to his, constantly drawing those far from the kingdom close to us so that we can tell them about the goodness of the Lord. And when you draw people to yourself, God, I pray that we would join with heaven in the celebration.
God, would you stir our hearts in that direction? Lord, if there are individuals here this morning who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would do seeking and saving work right here today. And that we would have the chance as a church to celebrate with those individuals. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me end with this. Uh, If you're reading along with us from Luke 15 to 20, that's what the reading is this week, there are a number of parables. Your homework is to apply the framework, and you can pick it right up in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, which is the parable of the prodigal son. You can look, or you can listen, look, and live starting right there. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. There'll be people up here who'd love to pray with you or answer any questions that you might have. Uh, Come and find us if you'd like to do that. Otherwise, have a great week.